In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. When you read the Bible, it appears that the religious landscape is incredibly diverse. In the Old Testament, you find those who worship Baal, Molech, the Egyptian gods. A little bit later into the New Testament, the Greek gods come in, and even some gods that cross over from one religion to another. For instance, St. Paul runs into the cult of Artemis in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. Now, in Greek mythology, Artemis was the twin of the god Apollo. But the Artemis that was worshipped in Ephesus, the temple there, by the way, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, was a different goddess that was unique to the Ephesians. This kind of thing was not uncommon in the ancient world. In fact, today we can consider some sects to be spin-offs, sort of like Frasier spun off from Cheers. Mormonism, for instance, uses the Bible and some of the language that we do, but they do not believe, for instance, that Jesus is the only Son of God, nor do they believe in the Trinity. Jehovah's Witnesses can fit in that camp too. Now, beyond the imitators of religious groups, we today also have a diverse religious landscape. Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, and more isms than we can count all together on our fingers and toes combined. According to my intense research on this topic, and by that I mean a very quick Google search, there were, as of 2006, about 4,300 unique religions in the world. Now, I couldn't find any current data, so it could be more, it could be less, but needless to say, it's a lot. However, in our gospel text, we can see that there really are only two religions in the world that play themselves out in the lives of people throughout human history. The first one, and probably the most dominant religion, is the religion of the law, that is, the attempt to reconcile with God or to make God happy with us through our own works. The second one is the religion of the gospel, that is, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that has been given to us by the Holy Spirit, worked through the Word and the sacraments, and that it tells us that God is already reconciled with us and happy with us because of what Christ has done for us by His perfect life, innocent death, and His resurrection from the dead. Today we will take a closer look at these two religions. Our gospel text begins, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Well, the good Lutheran question is, what does this mean? Well, to trust in yourself for your own righteousness means that when you weigh the good versus the bad in your life, you come out with more good than bad. It might also be something to do with uh, how the people are around you, that it's relative. That's why the reading mentions the idea of treating others with contempt. One of the consequences of thinking that you have enough righteousness to make God happy is that you tend to look down your nose at those you deem not good enough. This is where our old friend, the Pharisee, comes into the parable. Jesus says the man stood by himself. 
Now, I imagine the Pharisee wanted to make sure he could put some distance between himself and those who had come to the temple to pray so as not to dirty himself with their uncleanness. Uncleanness like, you know, the tax collector. But he does want to be heard. He thanks God that he's not a bad guy, you know, like everyone else. He's not an extortionist, he's not unjust, he's not an adulterer, and he's definitely not like that tax collector in the back. He's holier even than the law requires. Instead of fasting just once a week, he fasts twice. He tithes everything, and Jesus' words give a little bit of a hint into this later on in the New Testament when he condemns them for tithing down to the mint and dill and cumin and all the herbs and spices in the cooking cabinet. Aside from sounding arrogant, this guy does sound like a good person. Thanks be to God that he didn't do those things. Thanks be to God that he cared enough about his rabbi and the priest that he was very careful in his tithing. However, the problem here is that this man believes that righteousness is relative. He believes that because he didn't do those things like other men do and was trying to live a pious life like other men don't, that means that God must have looked at him and seen him as a good person. Now, this usually shakes itself out like this. If you walked out onto the street and asked people, do you think you're going to heaven? I'm guessing that most of the people around here would say, yes. An LCMS pastor did this in Denver once, and then he went one step further. He asked, well, why do you think that to those who thought they were going to heaven? The answers were very revealing. Most of the answers centered on the fact that the people being interviewed thought they were, on balance, good people. They did more good things than bad things in their life. But good compared to what? If our holiness is to be measured in relativity to the world around us, then we've got it pretty easy. Have you seen how people live outside the church? When I listen to the radio in the morning, I often have to turn the volume way down or shut it off so that my kids can't hear about the evil in their own backyard. That kind of relative righteousness is pretty easy to attain. But is this the kind of righteousness that God demands? God says, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. If righteousness is relative, God says the object of comparison is not the people around you. It is not the abortionists, the sodomites, or the atheists that you should be measuring your righteousness against. You ought to measure your righteousness against God's righteousness. And God's righteousness is not just an outward act. It's not enough to be faithful to your wife, but you can't even look at another woman. It's not enough to refrain from punching a guy in the face, but you have to refrain from anger in your heart towards him. 
It's not enough to refrain from stealing from your neighbor. God's righteousness demands that you be happy that someone has something that you don't, and you'll work just as hard to make sure that he keeps it as you would as if that thing were yours. God's righteousness demands that you don't just come to church, but that you shut off your phone and all thoughts about lunch and the sunshine and what you're going to do for the rest of the day or week as you gladly hear and learn the word of God and keep it. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. When we consider our righteousness compared to the righteousness of God, especially as it is recorded for us in the commandments, we see that that standard is impossible. St. Paul puts the final nail in the coffin. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus then turns our gaze to the tax collector. He is despised and rejected as a collaborator of the hated Romans. And even more so, he knows his sin. He probably prayed with King David, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. Like a good Lutheran, he stood as far in the back as he could, Beating his breast out of anguish, he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Except that's not really what he said. The Greek here has much more force than our English Bibles translate it. What the tax collector prays is, God, be propitiated to me, the sinner. Be propitiated, as in what St. John writes in his first epistle. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation is atonement language. God, atone for my sins with blood, he says. The tax collector knew that he could not muster enough good in himself to be considered righteous before God. He needed a savior from sin. He needed someone who would take the punishment for his sins and give him a righteousness that would stand before God's judgment. God, be propitiated to me, the sinner. Now, this tax collector is not above comparing himself to others. Having looked at the perfect law of God, he knew exactly where he stood. 
He saw himself not as a sinner, but as the sinner. Like St. Paul, he saw himself as the chief sinner. He measured his sins against others, and he knew that he stood condemned in them. Dear friends in Christ, chief of sinners though he be, Jesus shed his blood for the tax collector. In fact, this tax collector is precisely who Jesus came to save. St. Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. When we compare ourselves to others, we get nothing but an inflated sense of our own righteousness. That's the religion of the law that tells us the only way to make God happy is by being good. But when we stare into the mirror of the law, we see ourselves for what we really are, sinners doomed to die. It is for those who know where they stand before God, those who feel the condemnation of the law, that Christ died. The law is a bitter pill, but God's intent is never to leave us in our sins. When the law has done its work, there is nothing sweeter than the sound of the gospel ringing in the ear. This is why the church so often sings and why we will sing later this morning, Oh, the height of Jesus' love, higher than the heavens above, deeper than the depths of sea, lasting to eternity. Love that found me wondrous thought, found me when I sought him not. When you are laying dead in your trespasses and sins, God comes seeking you. He comes to take on the punishment that your sins deserve and to cover your nakedness with the perfect robe of his righteousness in a strange and beautiful way, Jesus comes to compare his righteousness to yours that you might be counted as righteous before the Father in heaven. Then you, like the tax collector, go to your home justified. And this is the religion of the gospel. This is our religion. In Jesus' name, amen. Now the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.